Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Good evening, everyone. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Allison Camerata, and we have sad breaking news tonight. The death of an American icon, Barbara Walters, news anchor, reporter, talk show host, television legend. She's passed away at the age of 93. She had quite a stellar career. She joined ABC News in 1976, becoming the first female anchor of an evening news program. And three years later, she became a co-host of 2020. Then in 1997, she launched The View, which is, of course, still on the air. In a statement, Barbara Walters' spokesperson, Cindy Berger, confirmed the news anchor's death. Quote, Barbara Walters passed away peacefully in her home, surrounded by loved ones. She lived her life with no regrets. She was a trailblazer, not only for female journalists, but for all women. That's what the statement said. We have so much to talk about with Barbara Walters and how she impacted all of us journalists. Joining me now is John Miller. He co-anchored 2020 with Barbara Walters. John, uh, sad news. She was 93. Obviously, she lived a life. But she, anyone who is, I'd say, uh, 40 or above who's gone into journalism, uh, did it on the shoulders of Barbara Walters in some way. Well, that's true. And I mean, Barbara Walters didn't just break the glass ceiling. She broke through. She caused the collapse of the glass building. Um, And she did it one step at a time through her career. Uh, Remember, she was on the on the Today Show um, and then moved to ABC, where she was uh, co-anchor of the ABC Evening News with Harry Reasoner. Uh, But Harry Reasoner seemed to resent her presence so much on the air that you could tell it wasn't just there wasn't chemistry. He was almost hostile. And she moved off and, and then forged her own path, getting the interviews that other people couldn't get, um, becoming the go-to person, whether you were a superstar or a villain. Um, and she was very generous. When her partner on 2020, which was a magazine show she also pioneered um, into an entire genre, uh, when her partner, Hugh Downs, retired, um, she, she called me in and said, I want you to be my new co-anchor. And I remember saying, and this is about generosity and her confidence in her own picks. I remember saying, Barbara, I've never anchored anything at all in television. And this is one of the highest rated television news shows in history. And she said, well, don't worry. Everyone has to start somewhere. <laughs> That's wonderful. I mean, what a great story. She she faced resentment from a lot of her male co-anchors, I think, not just Harry Reasoner. But when you talk about the incredible interviews that she did, I mean, so many were record, you know, ratings breaking and they were um, memorable. So just to name a few, um, obviously, she did lots of heads of state. She did one with um, the Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat, that I remember. She sat down with Michael Jackson, which, you know, basically... W- 
broke the rating system. And then I think the highest rated one ever was Monica Lewinsky. I mean, as you say, John, people, whether it was in the middle of a scandal or it was in the middle of a celebration, she was their go-to. She was the person who had established herself. You know, you just, you hadn't made it until you'd sat down and cried through a Barbara Walters interview. Well, and I mean, a lot of this was about her special technique, you know, that she forged. You know, if you were being interviewed by Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes, you know, when the killer question came, it came in the form of a stiletto. <laughs> when you were interviewed by Barbara Walters, uh, the killer question would still come. She would ask anything that needed to be asked, uh, but she did it in a way with uh, not a stiletto, it was, it was a scalpel. I mean, you didn't feel it going in, and she asked it with real curiosity. I really, the viewers really want to know the answer to this, and it made even a difficult interview, even an interview that might be hostile with another interviewer, seem like the kind of thing where the person just wanted to talk and tell her, and she got a lot out of a lot of people. You know, uh, you name it, world leaders, uh, Fidel Castro, she brought me back the box of cigars because she wasn't much of a cigar smoker and she knew that that would make me happy. Um, but I mean, it was, it was the way that made people feel confident that she would ask whatever needed to be asked, but also get their story out. Hmm. John, stand by if you would. We have Lisa Ling on the phone with us now. She, of course, was a View co-host for years. Lisa, just tell us what your thoughts are tonight with this sad news. Oh, Allison, I'm so devastated to learn of, of Barbara's passing. Um, I hadn't talked to her uh, in a while, and so I've been concerned about her health and, and how she's been doing. But I, I, this woman paved the way for all of us. I don't know that I would be doing what I'm doing had she not been there first and, and, and literally fought her way to the top. And I have always had so much respect for her. And it was such a tremendous honor to sit alongside her for three years at The View. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way. Um, you know, we all have all of us female journalists have some sort of origin story that involves Barbara Walters. Um, Mine happened in utero. My mother claims mm. that she was watching Barbara Walters while she was pregnant with me and thought that would be an interesting job for my daughter. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, it just goes to show how long Barbara Walters was in our lives and such an influential presence and such a, a trailblazer, as you say. I mean, to remind everybody, she started in 1961 as a reporter, writer and panel member at NBC. But it was no easy road, as you know, Lisa. I mean, the the assignments that she got and what she had to endure and break through in order to become Barbara Walters. I mean, for, for years, they only gave her the fashion beat. And she just, right. you know, her tenacity allowed her to become this icon. And one thing that I want to share, Allison, you know, when I started at The View, I was in my mid-20s, I, I had worked as a journalist for a number of years for Channel One, but, but still, still a bit of a cub reporter. And I was so always trying to pepper her with questions and ask her about how she got that interview with Fidel Castro and, and so on. And she would always say to me, she would look me in the eyes and would say, Lisa, no matter what, I know you're very ambitious, but if, if anything sticks with you, let it be 
never neglect your personal life. And she was emphatic about that because she had to make so many sacrifices to get to where she was. And I have never forgotten about that. And I certainly, um, I've thought about what she said to me so many times as I've tried to navigate this business um, that I, 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 I never wanted to have to make those kinds of sacrifices. And I really didn't because people like Barbara you know, did it for us in so many ways. I totally agree. I'm so glad you said that, Lisa, because I I know that to be true also. Women who got into this business in the 70s and 80s had to give up a lot in their personal lives. Many of them didn't have children. She had, I believe, three divorces. It was, you can imagine how hard it was to have a personal life when you were traveling and interviewing heads of state and all the the competition and, you know, sharp elbows that she had to endure. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because um, I think that that um, was a sacrifice that she wished she didn't have to make, but she was a product of her time. She she absolutely was. And and she even said that as she was retiring from, from The View and ABC, you know, after all the interviews that she'd done, she said that her, her biggest regret was that she didn't spend as much time as she should have spent with her daughter, Jackie, whom I can tell you she loved more than anything in the world. Mm. That's beautiful. Well, Lisa, thank you very much. Um, hold on for a second because we want to bring in Sharon Waxman now, um, who has her own, obviously, uh, story. She's a founder and editor-in-chief of TheRap.com. Sharon, tell us what you're thinking tonight. I mean, I'm just thinking what a monument Barbara Walters was and how she was a presence through uh, consistently through most of our lives. So, you know, you made the point that she started in 1960 and she retired, I guess, in the uh, mid uh, 2015 or thereabouts. She just never went away as a presence. So she is somebody who represented for those of us who were coming up as female journalists as a constant a uh, symbol of integrity, a symbol of a career and ambition and intelligence that you could aspire to. So I think that was really important. And when I think about all of the, the tarnish that we have on so many of our legendary uh, figures in media, Barbara Walters, it, it never touched her. She really came through decade after decade and cycle after cycle of the various uh, permutations of her career, whether she's on the Today Show or anchoring the, you know, the ABC Evening Newscast or starting The View or doing one-on-ones with presidents, which was like a must, you know, you had to sit down with her. She was somebody who was consistently there as a symbol of what journalism ought to be. At least that's how it was for me. Hmm. You talk about her interviews with presidents. She interviewed every U.S. president and first lady from Richard and Pat Nixon through Barack and Michelle Obama. You're right. I mean, it was you you didn't have a choice. I mean, all roads to the White House led through Barbara Walters, as you point out. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And and she was, I think, candidates like they needed to prove themselves to her in a way, in an interesting way. They needed to win her over. That's right. And and do it while somehow avoiding crying. I mean, I remember how many people would sit down for a Barbara Walters interview and be like, I, I, I vowed to myself I wasn't going to cry, but here I am weeping. You know, somehow she just turned on the waterworks for people. I think we have a Bob Iger from ABC statement um, here. He says he just tweeted out. 
Uh, she was a one-of-a-kind reporter. He says, Barbara was a true legend, a pioneer, not just for women in journalism, but for journalism itself. She was a one-of-a-kind reporter who landed many of the most important interviews of our time, from heads of state and leaders of regimes to the biggest celebrities and sports icons. I had the pleasure of calling Barbara a colleague for more than three decades, but more importantly, I was able to call her a dear friend. She will be missed by all of us at the Walt Disney Company, and we send our deepest condolences to her daughter, Jackie, Jacqueline. Yeah. I mean, she obviously is an icon and stayed there for so long at ABC. She's so identified with the Barbara Walters specials and, of course, The View. Um, She also was aware that she had a legacy. Um, She was proud of it. Here's what she said about her own legacy. No offense to you guys out there, but if I have a legacy, and I've said this before and I mean it so sincerely, I hope that I played a small role in paving the way for so many of you fabulous women who are here tonight. I can't tell you how much pleasure it gives me when some smiling young woman comes up to me and tells me of her achievements. That's my legacy. Hmm. Um, I was there that day when she talked about that, um, and it was powerful and obviously... um, you know, she, she was humble in accepting um, the accolades and her awards always. And so, so uh, Sharon, I mean, this is, she was 93. Um, obviously, she had a long, stellar uh, career. But as Lisa and I, Lisa Ling and I were just talking about, it, it wasn't without a cost. It wasn't without a lot of personal sacrifice. Yeah, I don't think that you ever saw that uh, on camera because she was just... Um, uh, she kept the, all of that stuff was not not part of anything that you would know as a viewer. But there's just no way that you can be blazing a trail like she was. As the she was a first at so many things. I believe she was the first woman anchor on the Today Show. She was the first woman to anchor the evening news on a broadcast network. And so these were all firsts that. Do, do not come at a cost. Those do come with certain sacrifice. And she would write about it much later in her memoirs but and talk about it later. But being the only woman journalist in the room it, 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 when you're there with the big guys, is that takes some real uh, self-definition and intention. And for those of us who came later, and I'm not a television journalist, I'm just a print journalist. But honestly you you feel like it seems like the most natural thing in the world and that's why you when you realize how how important representation is and seeing somebody do do the thing that you can then imagine yourself to become uh, I think she did that for an entire generation of women journalists and yes and by the way her male her male colleagues were not always welcoming and she did it anyway um, you know, we've uh, we've had a, an easier time thanks to her. Um, Sharon, thank you for all of those remembrances. And Lisa, I want to go back to you um, because you worked with her at The View. And I mean, you've talked about what a role model and mentor and help she was to you. And what was that like? What were those years there with her like? They, they were incredible, Allison. And, and hearing that bite from her talking about uh, her legacy and how she hopes that she has paved the way for younger journalists. She certainly has for all of us. And, you know, I started at The View when I was 26 years old. And 
Barbara was so welcoming of me. She even invited me. She would have these dinner parties at her home with the likes of uh, the, the late Richard Holbrook and the late Vernon Jordan. <laughs> um, you know, these these uh, hugely notable figures in American politics. Uh, and she would invite me. And all of these dinner parties, we weren't having casual conversation. She would propose a question to the table and everybody's voices, uh, you know, she, she, she truly wanted to hear from everyone and understand their perspective. I mean, Barbara was the ultimate sponge who always just wanted to absorb uh, as much as she could. And I heard John Miller talking about um, how effortlessly it was for her to make people cry. I mean, when I first sat down with her at a lunch after I was hired to uh, be a co-host on The View, she, she, she was looking me straight in the eye and asking me about my life and about everything that I had experienced as a young person. And it became so emotional. <laughs> this was a casual lunch. I mean, and, and, and this was a testament to Barbara's greatness, that it wasn't, she wasn't doing it because it was a job. She had this insatiable curiosity and she really, really wanted to know, know the story of the person she was talking to, the person she was interviewing. And that's why it was so effortless. <laughs> so that's incredible. She could just look at you and make you cry. That's, uh, I mean, that's an art form. That is, and, and you're not alone. I mean, how many dozens of people that sat down in those interviews didn't want to cry and started crying? She really had that skill, I guess, because as you say, she would just sort of look into your eyes or into your soul and try to get people to reveal their deepest secrets, and they often did. Um, Lisa, one of the things that I'm struck by is um, there was that, I guess it was her retirement on The View. I think it was when she was retiring. And I just remember all of the women, you included, I believe, yeah. and there was just a long, 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 long line of female journalists who stood and came to pay their respects to her. And it was just, you know, famous face after famous face after famous face who basically felt a debt of gratitude to her. Absolutely. Uh, I'll never forget that day. And, and honestly, Allison, um, when I asked her about retiring, she said something very candid to me, which she said, I, I, I'm not really ready to retire, but I, you know, I'm getting some pressure. Um, and, and I'll never forget that moment because I, I still believe that Barbara had so much more to give, but she felt at the time that she was getting pressure to, um, to, to be off the air. Um, but it was, you know, we were there because she, she was the queen, you know, she, she has been the grand dame of journalism for all of us and has, you know, I said earlier, just paved the way so profoundly um, for so many of us. And so we were, we were proud to be there. We were thrilled to be there. Um, and I know I've missed seeing her on television all these, these years. There really is no one who has been able to fill her shoes since. No one. Yeah, that was a powerful moment. And I, and I take your point that she uh, was getting pressure to retire, I guess, at, at a certain age. But she did it gracefully, even, even despite the fact that she didn't necessarily feel ready to do that. Um, Lisa, thank, yeah, thank you very much for sharing all of that. Um, I really appreciate being able to talk to you tonight as we just uh, absorb 
this sad news that Barbara Walters, of course, icon, legendary news anchor, um, has died tonight at 93 years old. We have a lot more news to get to tonight, and we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. A suspect has been arrested in Pennsylvania in connection with the brutal killings of four University of Idaho students. 28-year-old Brian Koberger now facing four counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, Ethan Chapin, and Zana Kernuddle. They were stabbed in their beds in the middle of the night. Police say the suspect is a graduate student in criminology at Washington State University. In a chilling social media post... The suspect tried to solicit information from criminals to, quote, understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. Let's go right to CNN's Veronica Miracle. She's live for us in Moscow, Idaho. How did police get this guy? Uh, Allison, well, but, you know, so much information has come out in the last 12 hours, so much of that we've learned about Brian Koberger and a source telling uh, Pamela Brown just recently that uh, Brian Koberger drove his white Hyundai Elantra, that one that police were looking for from Idaho all the way across the country to Pennsylvania to his parents' house around Christmas time. And that source telling CNN that during that time, police were tracking his uh, cross-country drive and they were also surveilling his parents' house. And it was DNA evidence and that car that led them to zero in on Brian Koberger. As you mentioned, a graduate student at Washington State University, which is about 20 minutes from here. We were there at his apartment earlier today where the Washington State University Police Department was inside searching on behalf of the Moscow Police Department because they don't have jurisdiction over on the Washington side. And what's coming next is this Tuesday. Uh, Koberger has an extradition hearing because he is still in Pennsylvania and the prosecutor here in Latah County saying that if Koberger decides to fight that extradition then this could drag out for a long time and it's also possible that we might not know a lot of the details until he is back in the state of Idaho because until he returns here according to state law that probable cause affidavit that has so much information cannot be unsealed. If he decides to on his own free will come back to Idaho and he is extradited, that will be unsealed, and we should know more, including a motive and exactly why this happened. Allison. Okay, Veronica, thank you very much for reporting on the ground there for us. Let's turn now to Camilla Bernal. So, Camilla, tell us what you're learning about this suspect and his background. Hey, Allison. So we're learning about more about his education. We know that he graduated in May with a master's in criminal justice from DeSales University in Pennsylvania. And as part of the research, you mentioned there was this post on social media where he was asking people to participate. I want to read part of what this research project was asking because it is alarming. He specifically asked to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision making when committing a crime. And this post that has since been deleted also asked, you know, in particular that the study seeks to understand the story behind your most recent criminal offense with an emphasis on your thoughts and feelings throughout your experience. So not just his master's on criminal justice, but also his Ph.D. on criminal justice. We learned from uh, Washington officials and the university there that he just finished his first semester as a Ph.D 
PhD student. Um, he lived on campus. There was an apartment and an office that the university police searched as part of a search warrant, uh, trying to find more information on what he was doing in Pullman, Washington. This is a city next to Moscow, Idaho. They are connected. Uh, there's people that know each other. They go back and forth. This is really one community with a state uh, border right in between. But really, everyone in both of these cities connected, worried, and still wanting a lot more information on this case, especially wanting to know why this was a targeted attack. And again, we still don't have that information from authorities, Allison. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Camilla, very much. So we're going to have much more on this suspect coming up and how police found him. We've learned a lot about the suspect in the killings of those Idaho college students, including that he drove across the country to his parents' house for Christmas break, which is where he was arrested at 1.30 this morning. Back with me, we have John Miller. Also joining us is former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe and CNN National Security Analyst Juliet Kayyem. Um, Andy, about that drive, the FBI tracked him from Washington State driving across in the car that we were all looking for across the country to Pennsylvania, and then they surveilled him for four days. That seems like an awfully long time to just keep their eyes on him and a lot of room for error, possibly. Why did they, why didn't they just arrest him back in Washington state? Well, Allison, you can't arrest someone until you have probable cause, uh, until you've convinced a judge that you have probable cause to believe that they committed a crime, and then the judge signs an arrest warrant for you to go out and do that arrest. It is likely that during that time period, they were still working on connecting Coburg to the DNA sample that they had from the crime scene. And during that period, if they had already were aware of Coburg, maybe they've already, they'd already associated him with the white car, they would have kept him under surveillance even while he was back in Idaho. And then, of course, while he makes his way across the country because they think he's probably their best suspect and they don't want to take their eyes off him for, for any reason, and not the least of which is because he is he's potentially a very dangerous person. So while the team, the investigators are working on building that probable cause, getting ready to go to the judge, getting ready to ask for an arrest warrant, the surveillance team is doing their work. And tracking someone across the country in a vehicle surveillance, it's very hard. It's like a uh, it's like a ballet. It's so tightly coordinated uh, from one place to another. Surveillance teams from different field offices are constantly handing off the subject to each other as he travels along. But it is something that the FBI does incredibly well. They've done it many times before, and they obviously did it successfully here. It is remarkable. I mean, if you've ever tried to follow anybody in a car, it, you know that it is hard. You can lose them at a red light. I mean, it's really it's impressive that they were able to do that. And so, John, I know you've been working your sources all day. So they found him using genetic genealogy, meaning like 23andMe. I mean, the kind of sort of family, you know, kits that people use to find lost family members. Well, I think one of the things that you could try in an investigation, let's back up. So our crime occurs in November. Um, by December 7th, they have the information about this white car. Right around Thanksgiving, uh, about 10 days after the murders, they start to get the lab results back that show we've got DNA from our victims, obviously. We've got DNA from the two kids who lived down on the first floor. Um, we've got DNA from some known subjects, but we also have unknown contributors. 
So you take the unknown contributors and you say, all right, I have no one to compare this against right now, but let's see who it relates to. And then when you find one of the people that it relates to is 15 miles away and has the same car that you're looking for, things start to come together. It may not be precisely that scenario, but that's how a case like this can go from nowhere to closing very quickly. It's because you're doing all the right things and you're using people the right way. They've got the Moscow police who are a small department, but they know the town. They know the people, they know the geography, they know who's who. You've got the state police homicide investigators. They know how to do a homicide and they've got a very sophisticated certified lab. You've got the FBI who of course can bring in resources, 20 agents on site, but can run leads across the country, including setting up a surveillance team in a rural area of Pennsylvania to watch a suspect till you can get the probable cause to get that warrant signed. Just incredible police work um, that brought it all together. Uh, so, Juliet, the, the background of this suspect, what we know about it is, um, I don't know. I mean, uh, I was going to say fascinating, but also frightening. You know, so he was yeah. um, studying criminology. He was soliciting information online from criminals about how they plan their crimes and the emotions they feel before and afterward. We have one of the Reddit posts yeah. uh, that he was claiming he was doing a research study. So it says, in particular, this study seeks to understand the story behind your most recent criminal offense with an <clears throat> emphasis on your thoughts and feelings throughout your experience. It takes on, you know, a sinister um, feel yeah. now that we know this. Right. That is exactly right. It, it seems... We keep talking about whether this was a targeted attack. Did he know any of the victims? Was he a stalker of one of the uh, female college students? Uh, uh, did he think that he had a relationship with one of them because of some online interaction? Uh, and we will find out more about that. So that the authorities were quite clear, and I think uh, for reasons that are obvious, that they are going to keep the information to a minimum to abide by uh, what the what the peculiar and particular rules are in Idaho until he's in custody in Idaho. Then they will release uh, you know information that will look more like an that will look that will be an affidavit. We will get the kind of information that we are used to. So until then, a lot of people are trying to put the pieces together. Uh, they want to protect their case. They want to protect what also just you know, there's the death penalty in Idaho could very well be a death penalty case. So they're just focused on that. But what we're starting to see, at least from the, his own social media presence and his own media presence is a, is, is in your, in your worst sort of interpretation of it is a dia, you know, a diabolical uh, intent uh, to play out a fantasy of what it is to be a mass murderer and getting information about how to do that and this has happened before and how to how to successfully uh, murder uh, uh, from others who have done it before and we don't know if that is as an alternative to the him knowing the victims or as a way for him to go after one or if not all of the victims who he uh, uh, who he might have known. That is that is the big question right now. We all want to answer that question because we try to give meaning to uh, these horrors and meaning for the family members. I mean, that's, you know, that they, they want meaning for it. And to believe that he just planned this out and showed up or was stalking some house for a random reason and kills these young adults is 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 it's all horrific, but it just makes it 
uh, so evil as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's so chilling that we do want to know yeah. what caused it. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, Andy, John, Juliet, thank you very much for your expertise tonight. Thank you. Okay, now to this. After waiting for years, Trump's tax returns are finally public. We'll tell you what's in them next. Six years of former President Donald Trump's tax returns are now available for public scrutiny. He fought for years, as you know, to keep them secret, but today a House committee released them. And, of course, they do raise questions about his finances, such as why did he pay little or no federal income taxes in some years? Here are some examples. In 2016 and 2017, Donald Trump paid only $750. In 2020, the final year of his presidency, he did not pay a dime in federal income taxes. Let's try to get some answers from our experts. We have Catherine Rampell. She's our CNN economics and political commentator. And David K. Johnston is a lecturer at Syracuse University College of Law who's been reporting on Donald Trump's finances for decades. Uh, so, David, this, is, this day must be uh, somewhat, I, I suppose, um, gratifying to you that finally the public can see what you have been uh, trying to alert us to for years. Yes, uh, it, it's nice after many years of, of trying to dig through Trump. There are lots of interesting things in these returns. Like what? Tell us what, uh, what jumped out for, to, to you, because you're truly the expert in this stuff. Well, he paid more in foreign income taxes than domestic. Uh, he has bank accounts in China, and you'll recall he insisted, no, that's all a lie. There's no bank accounts in China. Um, Let me stop you there a for a second, because it's not just China. He also... Um, has them in St. Martin, Ireland, and UK, but he also paid taxes in 2017 to China, Panama, Azerbaijan, Qatar, Turkey, and India. Go ahead, David. Well, so long as you disclose you have foreign bank accounts per se, that's not a problem. But in Trump's case, we have to worry about Who's putting money in his pocket, given his statements that he likes people to put money in his pocket and how that influenced policy? I also have a column up at DC Report, the news organization that I'm publisher of until Sunday when somebody else takes over, about how there are 27 sole proprietor tax filings that show zero revenue, but hundreds of thousands of dollars in expenses. Uh, Trump did this over his 1984 tax returns. He got caught. Uh, there were two trials. Uh, judges in both cases found that he committed civil tax fraud. That put him on notice that showing you have a business, or maybe it's an imaginary business, with no revenue but for which you take uh, expenses to reduce your taxes is a no-no. That's evidence, very powerful evidence of criminal intent. Hmm. So, Catherine, um, do some of these fishy things in his taxes, to your eye, show crimes or do they show that the IRS was asleep at the switch and not auditing him and that the tax laws allow for some of this, you know, dubious deductions? I think it could very well be all of the above. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in the tax code that is scandalous and yet legal. Just because a person pays very little in taxes does not in and of itself mean that they are breaking the law. Um, there are plenty of legal ways to avoid taxes uh, rather than evade them. That said, there's still plenty of dodgy material within these tax returns, some of which we knew before, some of which is maybe per perhaps new. Um, in addition to, for example, those suspicious uh, expenses um, that David just mentioned, 
There are loans to his kids that look like they might have been gifts, which should have been taxable. There are some dodgy charitable deductions. There are a whole host of things uh, that do look suspicious. Now, the audits are not complete, so we can't say for sure whether or not they cross the line into illegality, of course. But either way, I, I to your question, I do think it's the case that the IRS was asleep at the switch. There were plenty of red flags about Donald Trump's uh, aggressive, at the very least, tax stances going back decades, as we have heard. Uh, they should have been auditing him no matter what. It's within their manual, of course. It is their own policy to audit the, the sitting president every year, whether or not there are red flags. Uh, and they didn't do it, at least for the first couple of years that Trump was in office. So the question is why, and we don't know the answer yet. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the over one of the overarching questions. But also, speaking of his fishy charitable deductions. I just want to put this up. We have to go in a minute. But in 2015, well, let me just start at the bottom here. In 2020, Donald Trump made zero charitable deductions. That's obviously the year of the pandemic when so many uh, people and organizations were struggling. In 2019, he made 500,000 in charitable deductions. 2018, he claims 500,000. 2017, 1.9 million. 2016, 1.2 million. This one got our attention. In 2015, he claimed 21 million in charitable deductions. That seems out of character, let's just say. And it turns out that that's what he did was donate 158 acres of a property he owned called Seven Springs in North Castle. And that's one of the things that the Manhattan District Attorney criminal investigation is looking into um, because he may have overvalued all of that in appraisal. And, and Allison, that's a property. He bought the whole thing for seven and a half million. He couldn't develop it. So if you don't have any development rights, it's hard to imagine how you can come up with a number like that. It's uh, an excellent example of the kind of things that should be thoroughly investigated. David K. Johnson, thank you very much for your expertise in this topic. Uh, Catherine, thanks so much as well. Okay, now to this. A local paper did investigate the congressman-elect who keeps lying. And this was before the election. But were people just not listening? We're going to speak with the publisher of that paper about what he wishes people had paid attention to. New questions tonight about campaign expenditures by George Santos, the GOP congressman-elect who keeps getting caught in lies. Meanwhile, the New York Times reports there are also questionable payments by the campaign for rent and for exorbitant air travel and hotel expenses. But a lawyer for Santos says all the expenditures are legal and any suggestion otherwise is ludicrous. One local paper on Long Island, the North Shore Leader, started reporting on Santos's questionable biography back in September. The owner of that paper paper. Grant Lolly joins me now. Grant, thanks so much for being here. I've been looking forward to talking to you because you guys were ahead of the pack. You knew that something fishy was going on with George Santos. You guys wrote about it and people weren't paying attention. You, I'm interested in the meeting that you had with him. You met with him, I guess, three years ago. And how, what happened during that meeting? How did he strike you? Well, I sat down with him almost three years ago, um, and it was a strange meeting. I could tell he was boasting. Uh, he was evasive. Uh, I asked him a lot of questions. He was looking for help to run for his first race for Congress. And, um, you know, he, he came across as very phony and very boastful. Like, what was he um, telling you? What and, kinds of things was he trying right. to, what was he trying to convince you of? 
he was trying to convince me that he was a very wealthy man and uh, he was 32 years old at the time that he was very wealthy and he was very successful and very sophisticated in finance and um none of the pieces right up front it didn't sit right and uh his references to money and his focus on money really is wouldn't be the way someone who really is wealthy would carry themselves and so when and he I heard, yeah go ahead no and i heard stories over the months and years that followed um where he would brag to people about mansions that he owned in oyster bay or in the hamptons that were complete fantasy um but he and he would put people down and sell them I'm going to film. I'm going to do a commercial. And, and he asked a woman to, can I use your house? Because it's a nice house. He said, it's a very average uh, middle-class house. I, I couldn't film it at my mansion. I need your, 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 your very average house to film in. Um, you know, he literally put people down and, and, uh, and, and boast. Yeah. I mean, that, that screams man of the people uh, for a public servant. Um, so, so Grant, then your paper started reporting. I mean, when he did launch his campaign, you started reporting on him, but um, people weren't paying attention. And in fact, the North Shore leader uh, ended up endorsing his opponent. And I just want to read this. I've never seen an endorsement quite like this, so I just want to read it for everyone. This newspaper would like to endorse a Republican for U.S. Congress in New York 3, but the GOP nominee, George Santos, is so bizarre, unprincipled, and sketchy that we cannot. We endorse Democrat Robert Zimmerman. Santos has been all over the map on abortion and on Ukraine. He brags about his wealth and his mansions in the Hamptons, but he really lives in a row house in Queens. He boasts like an insecure child, but he's most likely just a fabulist, a fake. And did that get enough attention? I mean, why were people, you know, buffaloed by this guy? Look, you know, it, he wasn't supposed to be a serious candidate. And, you know, in defense of the local political leadership, I mean, the the seat that he was running for was not going to be a competitive seat. It was supposed to be, it, it, it was originally drawn to be a very safe Democratic seat. Um, and then in, an, in a big upset, the New York State Court of Appeals undid the gerrymander and drew whole new districts in just this past June. And he found himself the nominee in a very competitive district in what turned out to be a very Republican year, particularly on Long Island. Hmm. That's really interesting context. Um, well, Grant Lolly, hmm. you guys uh, make local news, I mean, and print journalism proud. And so uh, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us your thoughts. And if people had paid better attention, maybe uh, we wouldn't be in this situation tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. Sad news tonight. Legendary journalist Barbara Walters dying at the age of 93. Her legacy and the people who knew and loved her. Next. More now on our breaking news. An icon in American TV news has died. Barbara Walters, news anchor, reporter, and talk show host, was 93 years old. She always acknowledged that she did have a legacy, but she pointed out it was more than just her interviews with all of those famous people. CNN's Richard Roth looks back on her trailblazing career. Barbara Walters was one of the most fascinating people of any year in the television era. I know that I've done some important interviews. I know that I have been a part of history. Was she ever? Are you sorry you didn't burn the tapes? Yes, 
I think so, because they were private conversations. We read that you are mad. <laughs> From murderers... Why did you kill John Lennon? ...to movie stars... Are you a changed man since the illness? Did it affect you very much? Did you mind being thought of as sex, sex, sex? I think that what is important is to have curiosity. Uh, follow that curiosity. I'm a great believer in homework. Before people revealed all on social media, Barbara Walters was the interviewer to open up the stars. Does he hit you? He shakes, he pushes, he, um, he swings. I'm me, and, and I hope that they think that I'm fair and that I can be penetrating without being a killer. And I am, I hope. And which interview was her most important? The first, and, and at that time, the only, they only did one after interview, that Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin gave. Uh, you are always like this. <laughs> she said her 1977 interview with Cuba's Fidel Castro was a news coup. A man who runs a country? A man who allows no dissent? Castro didn't make it easy. Blowing uh, a cohibo, you know, the cigar <laughs> that he smoked, uh, smoke in my face for three and a half hours. I didn't mind it. It's a different time. About 74 million people, the most viewers for a news program, tuned in to see Monica Lewinsky, the White House intern involved with President Clinton. What will you tell your children when you have them? Mommy made a big mistake. <laughs> she got a reputation for making her interview guests cry. No, he never got to know. <laughs> and you won't feel so big. After Katherine Hepburn said she felt like an old tree, Walters was cut down by critics for asking this. What kind of a tree are you? It didn't take long for Walters to become part of pop culture. Hello, this is Baba Wawa. The same network that made fun of her was where she got her big break, NBC's Today Show. I was not a television suffragette. I kicked the door open because after being there 11 years, I was named the first co-host of a morning program. But she was not permitted by her co-host to ask a question until he posed three. Harry Reasoner. Barbara Walters. It got worse when Walters, to the surprise of many, was named the first female co-anchor of a network evening newscast. I've kept time on your stories and mine tonight. You owe me four minutes. <laughs> she later described it as drowning without a life preserver. The Barbara Walters Special. The specials saved my life. Good evening, I'm Barbara Walters. And launched a legendary career at ABC, capped by creating and co-hosting The View. When did you first <laughs> learn about sex? Well, I didn't learn about sex until I started to do this show, and now I know more about sex <laughs> than I ever wanted to know. The chemistry of it, and the fact that it's live, that it's outrageous, that you never know what you're going to hear. When she left The View and ABC, they named a building in her honor, a lasting monument for a woman who changed TV. I'm so proud of the women today. There are so many of them that are wonderful. That's my legacy. Hmm. As Richard just mentioned, Barbara Walters' most watched interview was in March of 1999 with Monica Lewinsky. Here's a little more. 74 million people tuned in. You showed the President of the United States your thong <laughs> underwear. Where did you get the nerve? I mean, who does that? <laughs> so, I, so I blurted out, you know, I have a crush on you. <laughs> and he kissed you? Yes. What'd you think? 
He's a good kisser. <laughs> did you ever tell Bill Clinton that you were in love with him? Yes. You did. What did he say? He said that means a lot to me. Did he ever tell you that he was in love with you? No. Those are some good questions right there. 74 million people tuned in to see that. Tributes for Barbara Walters are pouring in tonight. Joan London tweeting, quote, we've lost a true legend with the passing of Barbara Walters. Such a trailblazer, such a generous woman. I learned so much from working with her. Her 2020 colleague, Deborah Roberts, says, quote, what an honor to share the set with the inimitable trailblazer when I joined ABC 2020. We'll never forget the phone call when she asked me to join the groundbreaking program. And her view co-host, Michelle Collins, adds, One of the first rites of passage of becoming a host on The View was to have lunch with Barbara Walters. Few times in my life have I been that nervous. She was an absolute trailblazer, class, elegance, smarts that are increasingly hard to come by. I'll always be grateful. And Oprah posted this on Instagram. Without Barbara Walters, there wouldn't have been me, nor any other woman you see on evening, morning, or daily news. She was indeed a trailblazer. I did my very first television audition with her in mind the whole time. Grateful that she was such a powerful and gracious role model. Grateful to have known her. Grateful to have followed in her light. And the one and only Connie Chung joins me now. She, of course, worked with Barbara Walters at ABC News. Connie, uh, great to have you on tonight. Tell us your thoughts as you hear this sad news about Barbara Walters. Allison, I can't imagine journalism without Barbara. Barbara was uh, one of a handful of uh, women who was in in the news business at the time that I started. But beyond that, um, she she blazed a trail for the men, too. In other words, the men were sitting back there, um, not aggressively going after interviews, one-on-one interviews, and they were not picking up the phone, frankly. Um, Mm -hmm. She did everything she could to get an interview. She was indefatigable. Mm -hmm. Uh, I first met her in 1969 when I was working at a local station in Washington, D.C. And she was just, she, she was bigger than life. She met me in her limousine at the southwest gate of the White House because I wanted to interview her. And she, she, I hopped in the limo and I, I sat there in the back with her. And she had an assistant sitting in the front. And she was giving instructions on what to do about this and what to do about that. And I thought, oh, my God, this is like a Catherine Hepburn movie, you know, in which in which the executive is not barking orders, but saying so definitively, this is what I need to do. And I thought, oh, gosh, if I ever get to there, you know, how am I going to be? Well, we I met that was the first time. But then we had a long relationship because um, there were times when I was competing against her mm. for interviews. And what know? was that and, like, Connie, when competing against Barbara Walters for the get? What was that like? Oh, my God. I mean, I thought I was, you know, against Mount Rushmore. I thought <laughs> I'll never get this. But if I ever did, and I did a few times, um, she would write me a note. Mm. She would. I mean, I can just see her. She would wear. Uh, she she had this stationery that was blue, 
um, sometimes it was white with uh, blue lettering, but it had her, her handwriting was kind of slanted, um, not a school teacher handwriting. Hmm. You know, it was, uh, and every time she would write me a note, it was heartfelt. I mean, it really, it was so sincere. I thought, oh my gosh, this is how she, uh, gets people into her uh, close confidence. And I could yeah. tell when when I realized that we, I was doing everything that Barbara Walters did. I mean, I tried to. Yeah. Uh, for, it started out earlier. There were three big things, um, Allison. One was that her parents, her father had a uh, nightclub that collapsed and so basically she was supporting her family her oh. father her mother and her uh sister disabled sister oh. and then i my father retired and i was supporting my parents and there was a we had a bond because wow. of that wow. because yeah she she and i both understood the fact that we needed jobs and we had to put up with the sexism. and Yes, and, uh, and I wanted to ask yeah. you about that, Connie, because, I mean, this was no easy feat, obviously, for her to blaze this trail because you just so we just played this Harry Reasoner moment where, you know, they didn't, nobody welcomed her with open arms. They weren't, uh, her male co-hosts were not happy that she was there and they let it be known. And she stayed oh, anyway. I mean, it was, oh, you know, yeah. that that's, um, that's not an easy road every day to show up and feel that way. And her tenacity allowed her to stay. And one more thing, Connie, that I think that you can relate to, because I think that all female journalists in the 70s and 80s felt this way. Everything that she gave up for this career, you know, she really had to make so many personal sacrifices. Yes. Well, we both forgot to have a baby. So she adopted a baby and then I adopted a baby. And, uh, <laughs> you really did follow then, in her footsteps. You're not yeah, kidding. Here's one more, Allison. When when she was named the first female co-anchor of an evening news broadcast, 20 years later, I became the second yes. female to be uh, named to a uh, an evening news broadcast. I was the first at CBS, but the second after Barbara Walters. And when I was dumped after two years, she was dumped after two oh years. Oh my gosh! <laughs> she was she was the only one who could really console me. She called me and that I know what you're feeling, huh. you know, because we were both working with people who didn't want us sitting next to them. Wow. Yeah. You have a layer. So many parallels, Connie. And what do you think it was about with Barbara on the air? We, we showed a few clips there of some people that she was interviewing celebrities. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, that it was her signature move or what? I don't even know if it was intentional, but she always ended up making people cry to the point where people would start the interview by saying, and I'm not going to cry, Barbara, you're not going to get me to cry. And then they'd cry. And they'd what, cry. <laughs> what, what was her secret sauce for, for making people connect on such an emotional level? I think that she just, she made, provided an intimate setting. They, they didn't realize that uh, she was drawing them out uh, it was almost like I used to try to play shrink with people. And I think that that's what Barbara was doing. She was getting them to reveal their innermost thoughts. And um, and before they knew it, they were, they were confiding in her. Um, she was a very personable woman. And I found uh, one time I was at a, a 
my husband and I went to the opening of a ho- uh, of a hotel actually in Las Vegas, and we both Barbara and I got our nails done at the same time, and there she was. She was a loved gossip, so we <laughs> sat there getting our nails done and gossiping. It was the Best time I've had a long time. Oh, I would love to have a gossip session with Barbara Walters and you, for that matter. Uh, I can only imagine all the secrets and juicy stuff that she knew. Oh, know. yeah. She she knew it all. <laughs> and she was not shy about sharing it with <laughs> a girlfriend. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Connie, that's oh. great. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. I mean, you really um, bring back what we're... Uh, Often the glory day. I mean, I don't know if Barbara Walters would call them the glory days because, again, she was having to elbow her way to Uh the top. But that the era of, you know, limousines and assistants and all that she in 93 years, I thought about this, the arc of her life and her career and what she saw in journalism, I mean, is truly jaw dropping to, you know, to go from the traditional reporter pounding the pavement to the creating the view, which was groundbreaking in its format at that time. Um, she really saw and did it all. Well, you know what? She was a great producer. She had started, um, a program back at NBC called not for women only. And it was very much like the view, but they, it, the network actually didn't really support it um, in in many ways, but it was not for women only, but it was for women. And then later on, she revived it in many ways uh, by creating The View. Mm. So it was her concept, her idea. Uh, also, you know, when I worked with her at 2020, yeah. she was originally a writer at um, on the Today Show. When I worked with her at 2020, we we would sit at these meetings and uh, I would watch her say, no, this is what we should say. And she'd be scribbling on a piece of paper. And I knew what she was doing. She was creating um, a storyline mm. and um, and sort of basically saying, this is what I'm going to say. Yeah. And I want, you know, I want all of you to get together with this idea. That's interesting, Connie. Yeah, because, uh-huh. I mean, obviously at, at her heart, she's a storyteller. She was a storyteller. And I think that that is another reason that people so connected with her. Um, Connie, um, I'm going to let you go because speaking of The View, we're also joined uh, by Lisa Ling, who, of course, was a co-host on The View. But, Connie, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to talk to you tonight and to hear your remembrances of Barbara. Um, but I want to get to Lisa now, Lisa, tell us your thoughts as you're listening to Connie talk about her history with Barbara and some of your memories. Oh, well, I, I mean, I just found your conversation with Connie, one of my other idols, talking about Barbara, just so moving. I mean, we're talking about two women who have truly been the ultimate pioneers in our industry. And, and literally, as Connie talked about, um, sometimes competing for the same same interviews, um, and 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 you really had to do it at the time because there were so few women at that level in the business. But yet, there was this profound mutual respect uh, and adoration of each other that I will never tire uh, of listening to. And you know, one of the things that um, I was really able to experience working with Barbara at the View was the view gave her a different kind of a 
a platform. And for so many years, uh, she was known as, um, you know, the, 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 the woman who could secure the interview with just about anyone, whether it was Fidel Castro or, uh, you know, Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein to Princess Diana and then Monica Lewinsky. Uh, but The View really allowed her to tell stories of her life, to just be, uh, and, and, you know, to t- just tell stories as an ordinary human being and not as, uh, you know, the, the, the celebrity interviewer. Mm-hmm. And, and I think she really relished that. She really loved being able to just speak freely and, 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 and give her opinions and talk just so openly about what she was experiencing in her life. That's interesting, Lisa, because obviously that's so different than how she was trained. You know, obviously, as a journalist, you're not supposed to share uh, your opinions. She was trained in that old school of thought. And I saw that clip, and maybe you just saw it now, too, of The View, where The View, I don't have to tell you, can get spicy. And, you know, there's sex talk and girl talk. And she, Barbara, seemed to be, you know, blushing, basically, <laughs> when it would veer in that direction. Oh, she, Allison, Allison, she loved it. She <laughs> absolutely loved it. I mean, I was listening to Connie talk about how she loved to gossip. I mean, I, I was in my mid-20s, but I just, I will never forget the stories. And she just loved to know everything about everyone. <laughs> and I think she really enjoyed just having the freedom on the view to be able to talk about things that, um, you know, in, in her career as a journalist, she would never have been able to talk about. Um, yeah. And so that really was a really beautiful platform for her. And you talked about how you were in your 20s when you went to the view. You were not, you know, a TV professional. And did she coach you? I, I mean, she coached everyone. <laughs> you know, she was constantly. Um, advising people on what to, I mean, not so much what to say, because when we were out there, it was, it was kind of a free for all, but she definitely, you know, was, was never shy about sharing her two cents (laughs) about so many of the things that we were talking about. Um, But she was such a champion of all of ours. And, you know, again, Connie talking about the notes that she would write. I mean, even after I left the view and I started working for the National Geographic Channel, I received a note from her on that blue stationery hmm. with, with, you know, with that slanted handwriting that Connie was referring to that said, I'm watching you and I'm proud of you. Um, and she was someone that was, you know, always sent the note and, and, and wanted people to know that she um, was watching them and supporting them. That's so generous. That is so generous. And she didn't have to do that. You know, she was Barbara Walters, but that's really gracious. And one of the things I'm struck by in listening to you is that she had to, I think that a lot of women in the coming up in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s felt that they had to act like men because they had to kind of emulate men in order to be successful. And that meant being a little bit more aggressive. Sometimes uh, it meant being a little bit meaner. Uh, I think some women thought that, but she, it sounds like she didn't do that. She was supportive of female colleagues and young women coming up in the business. And um, I'm so, it's so nice to hear your experience with her. Yeah. I mean, I, I worked her with her toward the end of her te- uh, television career and she certainly was nothing but supportive with me. But I mean, Allison, she did have to fight. I mean, mm-hmm. she was so demeaned and she would tell stories about, uh, you know, the things that Harry Reasoner would say and do to her. 
Um, and, and, you know, I think it really compelled her to feel like she had to push harder and fight, fight harder as well. Um, and again, I don't, I don't know that we would be doing what we're doing if it weren't for the likes of Barbara Walters and Connie Chung, who, you know, really engaged in those battles for us totally um, so that we wouldn't have to fight those same battles. Yeah. Um, and they were hard. I mean, you know, Connie was talking about how both she and Barbara adopted their children um, because they, they they missed that opportunity. You know, they, they had to make so many sacrifices um, to, to be able to work at the highest levels in broadcast journalism. Um, and I think that there are a lot of regrets that come along with it. Now, having said that, I know that that there is no one, there was no one, no one more important to her. She loved no one more than her daughter, Jackie. I mean, um, her, her, her adoration of her daughter and, and the things that she would do for her daughter and, and the regrets that she had about not spending more time with her daughter when she was at the height of her career, um, I think continued to... Uh, impact her uh, for a very long time. Yeah, I, I do. I, even I know that about her, though I didn't work with her. I do. I did hear her talk about things like that. And I agree. Um, not only did she pave the way for us in our careers, but we were able to have more of a balance in our lives because uh, the women of, you know, Connie Chung and Barbara Walters generation told us not to give up what they had given up for this career. And I think that that's really, yeah, and, uh, and know, she was, and she was emphatic. Us. Yeah. Uh, Allison, she was emphatic with me about um, telling me not to sacrifice my personal career. I mean, yeah. she would say that to me so frequently. Hmm. Well, Lisa, it's great to talk to you about all of this and to hear your memories of, of Barbara Walters and just what a loss it is for all of us. But of course she had such a stellar career. Um, so Lisa, thank you very much for joining uh, me tonight. Thank you. I really appreciate talking to you. And coming up at the top of the hour Thanks, at Alan. midnight uh, from the CNN archives, we're going to air a special encore episode of Larry King Live with Barbara Walters, where she recounts her trailblazing career in broadcast news, her biggest headline-making interviews. So stick around for that. Of course, it is a busy news night here tonight. When we come back, I want to turn to the latest on the suspect in the killing of those four college students in Idaho. New information tonight on the suspect in the murders of those four college students in Idaho stabbed to death in their beds last month. 28-year-old Brian Koberger was arrested this morning in Pennsylvania and now faces four counts of first-degree murder. A law enforcement source says Koberger drove across country in a white Hyundai Elantra from Idaho and arrived in Pennsylvania at his parents' house right around Christmas. All the while, law enforcement was tracking his every step. CNN's Veronica Miracle has more. Detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania on a warrant for murder. It's the announcement Moscow, Idaho, and much of the nation has waited to hear. 47 days after the killing of four University of Idaho students, a suspect is now in custody. Kohlberger was arrested in Pennsylvania Friday on four counts of first-degree murder. In addition to felony burglary, which involves entering the residence with the intent to commit the crime of murder. Any indication that the suspect knew the victims? 
That's part of the investigation as well. It won't be something that will come out at this point in time. Police also won't release a motive, but law enforcement sources tell CNN police were led to Koberger after tracing the ownership of a white Hyundai Elantra seen in the area the night of the killings. They learned Koberger had left the Moscow area and was tracked to Monroe County, Pennsylvania, south of Scranton. Sources say the FBI surveilled Koberger for four days until the arrest was made at 1.30 a.m. Friday. Koberger's white Hyundai was also recovered, those sources tell CNN, and that his DNA was found at the crime scene. Providing any details in this criminal investigation might have tainted the upcoming criminal prosecution or alerted the suspect of our progress. Koberger is currently a grad student majoring in criminology at Washington State University in Pullman, less than 10 miles west of the crime scene in Moscow, Idaho. Police spent the day searching Koberger's campus apartment in Washington. Ryan Koberger. He graduated earlier in 2022 from DeSalle University in Pennsylvania. A Reddit post Koberger made while a student there indicates he worked on a study about how emotions and psychological traits influence decision making when committing a crime with an emphasis on your thoughts and feelings throughout your experience. Back in Moscow, the announcement is bringing the first signs of relief after weeks of fear. It's just been very scary not knowing who's out there. Um, and now? Oh, I feel much better. I feel relieved. And so I'm just very happy the police have done the work. Allison, undergraduate students at the University of Idaho get back to campus in less than two weeks. And authorities say they will continue to maintain a strong police presence in and around campus to make students feel safe. Of course, though, here in this community, an incredible sense of relief now that a suspect has been arrested. Allison. Veronica Miracle, thank you very much. We have more on the suspect's background next. Lots of new developments in the case of the Idaho student murders tonight, including how authorities identified and arrested the suspect. I want to bring in CNN security correspondent Josh Campbell, also former FBI senior intelligence advisor Phil Mudd, former FBI special agent Bobby Chacon, and criminologist Casey Jordan. Thanks to all of you for being here. Okay, so Josh, am I right to assume that it basically all of this came together in the past week once police got results from the DNA test that they'd taken from the scene? That's right. It comes down to DNA. Our law enforcement sources tell us, as well as this vehicle, this white Hyundai Elantra, uh, that they had a uh, be on the lookout alert for. Law enforcement sources tell us that they were able to match the suspect's DNA with unknown DNA found in Idaho through a public DNA database that matched uh, to a family member. That's how they started uh, getting onto the suspect. And again, this vehicle, which they were able to locate, uh, he traveled across the country. That, according to uh, sourcing from our colleague Pam Brown, and this morning, law enforcement there in Pennsylvania particularly the uh, Pennsylvania State Police, uh, put handcuffs on the suspect. The FBI was there as well. Of course, what happens next is we're waiting to see how this extradition process will take place, whether he will fight extradition. That's the what, Allison. We still don't know the why. We don't know what the connection was, what his motive was, whether he knew any of the victims here. That is all part of this investigation. We're hoping to learn more on Tuesday. We're hoping that court records will be unsealed there in Idaho. Phil, let's talk about how the FBI had to track him from Pullman, Washington, driving across the country to his parents' house in Pennsylvania. And then they had to sit on his house and surveil him for four days while they waited for an arrest warrant. I mean, that can't be easy. You know, we've all seen other cases where the suspect vanished during something like that. 
And I've seen cases where we lost people at the FBI for a while. Think about the, the, the opportunities he has to make a move when he goes from west to east. That is, every time you go into a rest area, you got to know where he is. This is somebody who committed four murders. You've got to know where he is at nighttime. You got to be able to see him on an open road. You don't want to have him see somebody behind him for too long. That might be a helicopter or a plane. If he gets into a dense area that is an urban area, you got to have rotating teams on him so he doesn't identify anybody. I tell you, one of the important things about that tailing process is, I think, the right choice by the police and the feds not to speak about this case. The individual appeared to be fairly comfortable not thinking that people were on his tail. That helped a lot here, I think, Allison. And it is remarkable because they put out that be on the lookout for that car on December 7th. And so he had three weeks to get rid of that car, but he didn't. And I agree with you, Phil, that that I guess them playing it very close to the vest obviously did help. Um, So, Casey, that brings me to you. The fact that we know that this suspect studied criminology and was soliciting information online from criminals in terms of how they plan their crimes and their feelings. Let me just read to you what he posted on Reddit seeking information. In particular, this study seeks to understand the story behind your most recent criminal offense with an emphasis on your thoughts and feelings throughout your experience. What do you see here, Casey? Well, it's almost like he was studying Now, he has been described by fellow criminal justice students in his program as one of those guys who was very and stared a lot. And when he did speak, he was overly academic and wanted to be an expert on everything. Some of the questions that survey, which he did as part of his master's study earlier this year about included questions about, did you plan it before you left your home? What were you thinking and feeling? Why What did you do after the crime? It's almost as if he wanted to hurt on violent crime Mm. by committing it himself, that he didn't trust self-reports of people who had been incarcerated, that he was surveying on Reddit. It was almost as if he was uh, challenging, how can you be an expert on something you've never done? Mm. And we have seen this. We have seen highly intelligent people. You know, uh, don't forget the Unabomber had a PhD. Ted Bundy went to law school. Sometimes there is a fine line between people studying something to be part of it. It's almost Mm. like he went native. But everything we have found out about him really would fit the pro that the FBI would have worked up on this kind of culprit. Bobby, your thoughts? Well, now we enter the new phase, right? As, as Josh and, and Phil alluded to, we've been in this covert phase, following him and, and, and subterfuge and things like that. Now we know who he is. Now we can come out in the open. You heard them ask today if anybody knows anything about this guy. So now we're going to see a much more public and overt investigation of this guy. I mean, they have what they need. The prosecutors would not have gone forward with lodging charges if they weren't comfortable with what they have. But now we're going to see a much more covert overt investigation. They're seeking people to call in and and tips. I think they'll get a ton of tips now overnight in the next couple of days about him and his behavior both before and after the crime. And I might as well just put up the tip line for anybody who knows anything about this suspect. The uh, Idaho police would sure like to hear from you. The Moscow Idaho police, 208-883-7180. Friends, thank you very much for all of your expertise. Okay. meanwhile, the January 6th transcripts keep coming. And this time we're learning more about how much Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas knew about his wife's texts to Trump's chief of staff. That's next. 
And at the top of the hour, we have a special encore episode of Larry King Live with Barbara Walters. She talks about her career, her big interviews, her life, all in her own words. That's coming up at midnight. The newest batch of transcripts from the January 6th committee includes the testimony of Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and a longtime conservative activist. In the days after the election, she was texting with then-Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And while Donald Trump and his supporters urged the Supreme Court to consider throwing out millions of votes in battleground states, Mrs. Thomas denied putting any pressure on her husband. She told the committee, quote, I can guarantee that my husband has never spoken to me about pending cases in the court. It's an ironclad rule in our house. He's uninterested in politics, and I generally don't discuss with him my day-to-day work in politics. I did not speak with him at all about the details of my post-election activities. But some of the transcripts suggest that might not be true. Let's bring in former federal prosecutor Shan Wu and CNN political analyst and managing editor at Axios, Margaret Talev. Margaret, um, let's recap and remember the text exchange between Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows, in which she... Um, sort of uses code and refers to someone as her best friend. And I remember there being speculation for weeks about was she referring to Justice Thomas. So here it is. She says, Mark Meadows says to her, okay, after the election, this is a fight of good versus evil. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. Do not grow weary in well-doing. The fight continues. I have staked my career on it. Well, at least my time in D.C. on it. Ginny Thomas responds, thank you, exclamation point, needed that. This plus a conversation with my best friend just now. I will try to keep holding on. America is worth it. So people wondered if that meant Clarence Thomas. And here's what she said to the panel. Um, She said they asked her about that text. And if she was calling her husband her best friend, she said, Mark Meadows is a friend of mine. And my best friend that I talk about is often my husband. So now we know she did talk to him on that day. We don't know exactly about what, but what does that suggest? Oh, hold on, Margaret. We have to fix your audio. Hold on a second. Okay, hold that thought. We're going to fix that. Shan, uh, I'll come to you first. This doesn't look good. I mean, it doesn't look good for Supreme Court, uh, for Justice Clarence Thomas, that, I mean, this is what people feared. And here she's saying, yes, I, when I say my best friend in code, it means my husband. Exactly. She has confirmed what everyone had feared. And this really is much bigger than just a spouse confiding in her spouse. It goes to the deep structural flaws of the current Supreme Court. They are incapable of policing themselves. They're living in a bubble and they want to demand that nobody scrutinize them whatsoever. Really, the breadth of her commitment to installing Trump, believing there's fraud, even when she admits in other places in transcript there's no evidence of that, it really indicates that Justice Thomas should recuse himself from anything to do with the Trump administration, any issues, because his wife is so committed to Trump being in power no matter what the facts are. Mm. Margaret, speaking of which, yes, 
committed to her hunch, I suppose, without the facts or the evidence. And she admits to that. So here's another exchange. This is between uh, Congressman Raskin and Ginny Thomas. Uh, She says, I can't say that I was familiar at that time with any specific evidence of voter fraud. I was just hearing it from news reports and friends on the ground, grassroots activists who were inside various polling places that found things suspicious. And uh, Jamie Raskin says, and what are the episodes of fraud that still concern you, even in the wake of more than 60 federal and state court decisions rejecting allegations of fraud and irregularity. She says, there seems to be a lot of people still moving around, identifying ways that there were, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I don't know specific instances. I mean, that yeah. there it is right there. She doesn't know any specific inf- instances. That didn't stop her. Allison, if you go back and contemporaneously look at what she was saying in those texts to Meadows, putting pressure on him uh, to do something, expressing frustration with Mike Pence, uh, and then you juxtapose it with what she actually told the committee, they're just so different. I mean, she was so, um, remember, she didn't want to talk to the committee. She was uh, very much leaning into the election conspiracy theories. And I think to Shan's point, um, you know, when she's asked about this, uh, what was she talking to her best friend about? She says um, she doesn't recall specifics that uh, his basically his role with her would be to give her spousal support. In other words, comfort her when she was upset about things, but insisting that she never spoke about details with her husband, that she never mentioned to him that she was texting the president's then chief of staff. Then it's just incredibly hard to believe that there would be such a firm firewall in place and yet that she couldn't recall details about it. And so I think uh, because there has been building pressure on Thomas to recuse himself in future decisions on the other justices to try to force a recusal or make a decision themselves, uh, it, it just it seems like what she was trying to get out of this uh, committee process was a little bit of, of space, a little bit of room for a reset. Um, it's just all very damaging now that it's sort of laid out, I think, in the record. Yeah. Uh, Margaret, Shan, thank you both very much. Great to talk to you tonight. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.